Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In the mid-19th century... New York was one of the fastest growing cities in the world. Between 1840 and 1860, its population nearly tripled in size, growing from 300,000 to 800,000. In those years, the city also underwent an extraordinary transformation, giving birth to modern New York. At the heart of this story was the quarter of a million Irish famine emigrants who made the city their home after fleeing the Great Hunger in Ireland. The story of the famine Irish in New York is indeed remarkable. Over the space of just 15 years, they became the largest community in the city, even outnumbering native-born New Yorkers in most districts. This is a captivating history that defies stereotypes of romanticized poverty or streets paved with gold. As you're about to hear, the actual story is far more interesting. Now before we continue, we'll get the formalities out of the way. My name is Finn DeWire. This is the Irish History Podcast, and today's episode is the story of the famine Irish in New York. If you're tuning in for the first time, don't forget to subscribe to the show. While I have lots of great content on the way, I also have a full series on the Great Hunger you will find fascinating if you enjoy this show. That dates from around 2018. In today's episode, I'm joined by Professor Tyler Anbinder. Tyler is a professor in George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and he's an expert in the history of New York and the famine Irish in the city. He's written numerous books and articles on the subject that speak to the lived experiences of the time. It's what really drew me to his work when I was researching my series on the Great Hunger, so I was delighted he agreed to an interview. A quick announcement before we begin, my exclusive series on the Irish Civil War for supporters continues on Monday, February the 20th. That episode was one of my favourite in the series to make. It focuses on the events that sparked the war, the opening decisive months of the conflict, and also includes a detailed discussion on Michael Collins with Dr. Brian Hanley, where we pick apart the man from the myth. That episode drops, as I say, on Monday, February the 20th, and will be exclusively available for supporters on Patreon and Acast+. If you want to get this exclusive series, along with hours of bonus content, you can do so by becoming a show supporter. 
It's a really easy sign up process at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast or ACAST plus. You get hours of exclusive ad free content and support my work in the process. You'll find links to Patreon and ACAST plus in the show notes below. Sound on today's episode is by Kate Dunley. To begin our conversation and set the scene, I asked Tyler what New York was like in the late 1840s and early 1850s. In order to get a sense of the New York the famine Irish arrived in, you need to forget any idea of the modern city, as Tyler now explains. New York in 1850 had about 600,000 people. New York in those days was just Manhattan Island, New York City was. And pretty much all those 600,000 people live south of 42nd Street. Almost all of them live south of 14th Street. So it was a kind of a crowded place in that sense. New York, just to give you a sense, Manhattan has about a million people now, and that's in big skyscrapers. So you've got nearly half as many people as live in, in Manhattan now, but most of them in the lower part of Manhattan, most of them in buildings no taller than five stories. So people feel pretty crowded. Uh, it's a very dirty city by modern standards. There's horse manure everywhere. The streets are just covered with it. So much so that most New Yorkers don't know that their streets actually have cobblestones because the manure is just inches thick. And every several years or so, the city will come around and scrape the layer of manure off. And people will see the stones and say, whoa, we have cobblestones. And even that only gets done in the nicer parts of the city. New York was a very wealthy city at the time. And I asked Tyler to explain a little bit about this. How did the city make its money? There was a building boom underway, which we'll talk about later in the episode. But for the moment, Tyler explains how the broader economy worked and how New York had emerged as one of the most important cities in the US. The the best way to understand New York in 1850 is you know, it's got a couple of facets to its economy. One is national and international commerce. So the port is the biggest and most important port in North America. A huge amount of the goods that come into the United States and go out of the United States come through New York City. And then there's a whole financial infrastructure around uh, around that commerce, insuring it, brokering it, the shipping of it even just moving it because it'll come, say, you know, grain that comes from the American Midwest will come into the city, say, across the Hudson River, whether that's by railroad to New Jersey and then across the Hudson River or down the Hudson from upstate via the Erie Canal. And then that stuff will leave a, leave a ship at a dock on the Hudson River, which is where the domestic ships mostly land, and then the international shipping is mostly on the East River, so that stuff will have to move across the city on, in a you know army of carts and then be loaded onto the ships that will take it uh, mostly to Europe. And then, of course, there's stuff coming in from Europe, more manufactured goods, shoes, metal, things like that, that will come in through the East River and then be moved on elsewhere. So having talked about what life was like in New York, we moved on to talk about the arrival of the Irish. In the 1840s, Irish immigration took on previously unseen proportions. In the space of about 10 years, large parts of New York effectively became Irish neighbourhoods. 
Tyler now picks apart the numbers, which are at times mind-boggling. You know, a million people leave Ireland as a result of the famine, and a million to a million and a half, probably a million of them come to the United States. Probably half of that million live at some point in New York City. So for a lot of people, that's only going to be for a few days or a few weeks. And then probably half of that settle in New York City. So by 1855, out of the 800,000 people living in New York by 1855, about 200,000 of them are Irish born. So it's a large Irish population. So about half of all the residents of New York City are foreign born in 1855. And you can compare that to today when it's about a third foreign born. So New York City may feel like it has a lot of immigrants now, but it had, you know, half as many again in terms of proportions in 1855. So a lot of, you know, there, there's more Irish living in New York than any place maybe except Dublin. So the Irish population of New York is pretty close to Dublin at that point. Obviously, these people needed work and a place to stay. And this led us on to talk about housing. To accommodate the rapidly growing population, New York was undergoing a building boom. The city became a building site. This would provide homes and jobs to many of the Irish. Now, Tyler starts by explaining how this building boom started. Really, the biggest part of New York's economy in 1850 is construction. I mean, New York City is just a huge construction site in 1850. The immigrants who are pouring into the country as a result of the famine in Ireland, as a result of economic dislocation in Europe, so Germans are the second biggest group coming to New York, uh, but people are coming to New York from everywhere, from England, from Scotland, from the Netherlands, from Scandinavia, from Spain, pretty much from everywhere, from France everywhere in Europe, that is. And there are some people coming in from Central and South America as well, from the Caribbean as well. But at this point, mostly from Europe. All those people need places to live. And there just isn't enough housing for them. And so one thing that New York landlords do is they take their single family houses and they divide them up into, you know, uh, into tenements. But these are not tenements in the modern sense of the word that we think of with, you know, tall brick buildings. These are you know, today we would call a brownstone, except they'd be made of wood, not stone. And but, you know, a two or three story building and that had been built for one family. Instead, that's going to be used for five or six. But then the biggest uh, construction projects in 1850 are the building of brick tenements. And so you'll take one of those wooden houses that was built to hold a family and you'll replace it with a five story building that's designed to hold 20 families. And then very often even, and, and that would typically be a building that would be say 25 uh, by 50 feet and you'd have a 25 by 50 foot backyard for the outhouse, for the pumps and all that stuff. But then some landlords to make as much money as possible will put another building behind the first tenement building. So they'll have a rear tenement and that's gonna be a 25 by 25 foot building that can hold another 10 families. So now you've got 30 families on a 25 by 100 foot lot that a few years ago had held one or just a couple. And so all that construction takes lots of labor, right? And there's nothing mechanical at all being used to build those buildings. So the foundations are being dug completely by hand. All the dirt and rock is being hauled away completely by hand with the help of horse-drawn carts. 
And then all of the uh, timber that's being brought in is brought in by hand. All of the bricks and the mortar by hand. And so that's a huge amount of work and takes you know dozens and dozens of people to build each tenement. And that's what you know more of the immigrants do than any other thing. I asked Tyler, where specifically did the Irish live? As you're about to hear now, he talks about the neighborhoods that would become effectively Irish neighborhoods and also some of the conditions they lived in. So the Irish are living in tenements, both the old kind and the new kind. So when the famine starts in 1846, most of the housing in New York is of that older kind that I described, the the single family homes subdivided into apartments. And most of the Irish arriving at the beginning of the famine are living in those. But it's during the actual famine years from 1846, you know, on through the next decade that the landlords start replacing those buildings with the with the prototypical brick tenements that we think of today. And so by the end of the famine, you know, let's say by 1854, people debate when to date the end of the famine. Um, most of the famine Irish living in New York would be living in those brick tenements by that point. And then also in terms of where they live, it's important to, to understand that so initially the Irish immigrants are mostly living downtown in the Sixth Ward, which is where Five Points, uh, the Five Points neighborhood is. So that's just north and a little east of City Hall. That's basically where Chinatown is today, where Chinatown meets the courthouse district. That's Five Points. And, and that's the, the number one location for the Irish immigrants. The second biggest location is just to the east over by where the Brooklyn Bridge is now. That was known as Ward 4 back then. Uh, ward 6 and Ward 4 were the two by far uh, heaviest Irish population wards in the city at the beginning, in the early years of the famine. Those uh, places both had more than half the adults living in those places were Irish born. But by the end of the famine migration, by the mid-1850s, the Irish make up the largest, the largest population in almost every ward in New York City. That's how huge the famine immigration was. So there's only a couple of, there's only one ward in the entire city where when you look at adults, there are more adult native born than more adult uh, immigrants. And there are only four wards where there are more adult people of any other background than of Irish. There's the German neighborhood Klein Deutschland, which is what's now known as the Lower East Side. That was uh, majority, well, plurality German, but there are even a lot of Irish there. But so every ward in the city, if you look at the adult population, save one, has more Irish than non-Irish. One of the other interesting things is that, you know, there's a significant Protestant Irish population in the city, and they tend to live in the wards that are mostly native-born. So that that one ward that has uh, Ward 9 on the west side that had more uh, natives than Irish it also had a large Irish Protestant population. So the Irish Protestants kind of feel safer, more comfortable being with the native-born Protestants than they do with the Catholic Irish. And so that continues to be a divide in New York City for a while, the Protestant Irish on the west side and the Catholic Irish on the east side. Though by the the late 1850s, there are just so many Catholic Irish that the Catholic Irish really dominate everywhere. Okay, so we have a sense at this point about where the Irish were living, but they didn't all find work in construction. 
Tyler now explains the other types of jobs they did. Irish immigrants can be found in almost every part of New York's economy, but they especially concentrate in a couple of areas. One is the building trades and construction. So every part of construction is dominated by the Irish by the mid-1850s. Day labor in particular because it takes hundreds and, and thousands of day laborers to build the tenements that are going up in New York City at any one time. You know, all the work that's done mechanically today is done by hand. All the digging of the basements, the building of foundations, um, everything that's brought into the construction site and moved around it is done by hand, and the Irish are doing all of that work. So, you know, 95% of the day laborers on construction sites in New York by the mid-1850s are, are Irish-born. But also all the skilled work on construction sites by the mid-1850s is dominated by the Irish Carpentry in particular, but bricklaying and masonry also is being done by the time the American Civil War starts, mostly in New York by Irish immigrants. The Irish are also heavily found in things, uh, the clothing trade, so tailoring and shoemaking. Those are the other big trades that the Irish are involved in. But you find Irish immigrants in, in virtually every kind of, of occupation where they're underrepresented are some of the more higher skilled artisanal trades, so like cabinet, cabinet making, goldsmithing, things like that, where they wouldn't have had much opportunity to have experience in Ireland. Those are things in which the, um, the Irish are going to be underrepresented. And then in terms of women, Irish women are overwhelmingly working as domestic servants in the households of others. You know, New York is a very wealthy city in the 1850s, and New Yorkers are clamoring for people to work in their homes, to cook their food, to take care of their kids, to clean the houses. People prefer live-in maids in, in that era. And so you have lots of unmarried Irish women who are willing to take those jobs. And those jobs don't pay great. They sometimes only pay a couple of dollars per month, whereas a, a day labor job on a construction site would pay a dollar a day. But those jobs, all the, the domestic service jobs come with free rent and free food. So room and board plus that small salary. And the Irish immigrant women can actually save a lot of money working those jobs. And they save that money and they, they send it back to their families in Ireland. Another big thing that Irish women do would be sewing. So in the garment industry. Um, this is still a period where men are more frequently found in the garment industry than women. But Irish women, because they work so cheaply, become a bigger and bigger factor in the garment trade, especially doing work at home. So unmarried Irish immigrant women will do domestic service in someone else's house. Irish immigrant women with children who are looking to earn money will do sewing at home to help to help bring in money. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When we think of the famine Irish in New York, I think a lot of us conjure up an idea of grinding poverty. Tyler has spent years researching their lives, and what he has found challenges this narrative. The Irish were poor, but that's not the full picture. You know, the way we tend to look at the at the famine Irish in America is that they're the poorest immigrants ever to arrive in the United States, and that is definitely true. And we tend to romanticize that experience, in, even in a negative way, and think, oh, these were the poorest of the poor, and they were kind of trapped in their poverty due to a lack of education, a lack of skills discrimination from native-born Americans. And it, it's true that there was discrimination and lack of skills and lack of capital being brought to America by these immigrants. Uh, but the Irish immigrant experience in New York was not one of abject poverty. It, it might have started that way, um, but the Irish quickly learned how to navigate the American economy and the New York economy. They learned how to network, for example, to use uh, information they gathered from others to find the best jobs in New York, and then also the networking to learn where in the United States to move to find better jobs and to find places where they could afford to buy their own homes. And so what you find is that only about a quarter of the, if you look just at the men, only about a quarter of the famine era immigrant men uh, who start only about a quarter of the famine immigrant men start at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder and end their lives there. The other three quarters either move up the ladder, say from day labor to some skilled trade or to office work or even to business ownership, or they never started at the bottom to begin with. So that's another thing we tend to forget is that it's not the poorest of the poor who dominate the Irish immigration to America, because the poorest of the poor during the famine couldn't afford to get to America. In those days, it's a 30-day trip from Ireland to America. Actually, it's a 30-day trip from Liverpool to America. Then you had to make the trip from Ireland to Liverpool to even get on the ship to America. And in those days, you had to bring your own food on the ship. So the, the ticket on the ship cost the equivalent of you know, what today would be more than $1,000. So most of the Irish couldn't afford that. Then you had to bring 30 days worth of food on the ship because they didn't provide you with meals on the ship. So it's, it's not the poorest of the poor who are coming to America, with the exception of some who are being, you know, whose trip is being paid for by relatives already in America. So it's kind of the lower middle class of, of Ireland that's coming during the famine. And so those are people who have more experience in business, more experience with capitalism than, than we've imagined. And so these people do a pretty good job of maneuvering through the American economy and finding ways to, to climb the socioeconomic ladder. And so what I found in, in my research is that, you know, you look 20 years on, 20 years after the famine immigrants arrive, and about 30% of them are uh, actually business owners by that point. They run saloons, they run groceries. So, you know, a large proportion of the, of the famine immigrants have, have done well in America after they arrive. 
And, and so this idea that it's only the children of the famine immigrants who have any chance to succeed in America uh, is really not true. While most famine Irish did advance over the decades, their lives in New York weren't easy. The arrival of the Irish saw the growth of an explicitly anti-immigrant movement called nativism. Tyler explains what this was. Nativism is the term that is used in the United States to describe anti-immigrant sentiment. And in the United States, that can mean a number of things. It can mean just against all immigrants. We don't want immigrants coming to the United States. But in the period of the famine immigration, the United States was a huge place without very many people relatively. And so most Americans weren't against immigration per se. It was a very rare thing in the, in the era of the, of the Irish famine. What was much more common uh, and the way the term nativism tended to be used in that period was the idea that, well, we want immigrants to come, but we don't want them to have too big a role in American government. So the immigrants should come, they can work, but they shouldn't expect to play a role in government, in politics. The main thing that nativists want in this period is to change the number of years that an immigrant has to wait until they can vote. So when the famine Irish come to America, they have to wait five years until they become can become citizens and vote. Nativists want to change that to 21 years. And so that would have disenfranchised the, the famine Irish for a whole generation. But it's interesting to note that, that you know, there wasn't much support for that, that effort to disenfranchise the famine Irish. And so, you know, it never becomes law and the, the famine Irish end up playing a, a key role in American politics. This rising anti-immigrant sentiment led to violence on numerous occasions. Tyler explains why native New Yorkers disliked Irish Catholics in particular. There's two kinds of, of violence associated with anti-Irish sentiment that you're going to see in New York in the, in the era of the famine migration. The first is what comes from native-born Americans, and that's typically just a general anti-Irish sentiment. There's a sense that the Irish are lazy, that they won't work, that they're going to become dependent on charity. There's also a sense that Catholics, uh, among American nativists, there's a sense that Catholics can't be good, good American citizens, that to be a good citizen in a democracy, you have to be independent-minded. Um, you have to be able to look at the candidates for office and choose the one who's, who's going to be the best for the country. And there's a sense among American Protestants that the Irish Catholics are going to follow the orders of their priests and therefore can't be good citizens because they'll vote in a block and not uh, using their consciences. There's also a, a belief among American Protestants that Catholics don't believe in education, and Americans believe education is a key to democracy, that you have to have an educated electorate to have an electorate that, that can vote for the best candidates to, to run the country. There's a sense that, that the Irish pull their kids out of school very young to put them to work, and therefore those kids don't get enough election to make good citizens. There's also a sense that the Catholic Church discourages education. There's a belief among American Protestants that the Catholic leadership wants Catholic immigrants to be uh, ignorant because uh, it's only ignorant people who would believe the superstitions of the Catholic, uh, of the Catholic Church. And th therefore, Protestants believe that, that Catholicism and 
democracy uh, are, are simply incompatible. Then added to that, you have, uh, as you mentioned, kind of the conflict between Irish Catholics and Irish Protestants in America, kind of the, the orange uh, parade kind of things that you find in, in July each year. Now, what's interesting is, is initially when the Irish uh, famine immigrants first arrive in the 1840s and 50s, you know, July 12th is not a significant day in New York at all, not in the 40s, not in the 50s, just starts to grow in the 1860s. And it's only in the early 1870s that you have the first violence during uh, Orange Day parades when uh, Irish Protestants uh, try to, to parade through the city and Irish Catholics take exception to that. And you have fighting breaks out and, and huge riots and, and casualties as a result. But initially for the for the famine uh, Irish, it's mostly natives versus Protestant, uh, natives versus uh, Irish Catholics and not nearly so much Irish versus Irish at that point. The last aspect of life in New York for the famine Irish that we discussed was how they adapted to the racialized world of the United States in the later 19th century. The famine Irish arrived just as the tensions that would lead to the eruption of the US Civil War were building. Tyler explains how the famine Irish reacted to this and how relations between African-Americans and the newly arriving Irish changed over time. The story of how the famine Irish in New York adapt to uh, the racialized world of the United States is a complicated one. On the one hand, the famine Irish, when they move to America and settle in cities like New York and Boston and Philadelphia and so forth, they move to the parts of those cities with the cheapest rents. And the cheapest rents are in the neighborhoods that have the most African-Americans. So immediately Irish immigrants and African-Americans are put in close contact. And so the, the way in which they adapt to that is really kind of multifaceted. So on the one hand, within those neighborhoods, you find relatively good relations between African-Americans and Irish-Americans. They live in they live in the same tenements. Very often they have romantic relationships. They have children. They drink in the same bars. They dance in the same dance halls in those neighborhoods. And so initially the relationship is fairly good. Eventually, though, the Irish learn that part of the way you be you become kind of accepted as a white American is to demonstrate disdain for African Americans. And so you find Irish Americans more and more as the years go on, um, expressing more disdain for African Americans, in particular, um, demanding that African Americans not be given the same rights as white Americans. And so once the American Civil War starts, the Irish mostly come down on the side of not the Republican Party and Abraham Lincoln, which calls for the freeing of the slaves, the ending of slavery, and granting of uh, equal rights to the freedmen, but on the side of the Democratic Party, which calls for not grant, you know, maybe acquiescing to the end of slavery, but not granting African-American citizenship or any rights that whites have. And it's hard to know why the Irish take that side. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing. 
when the Irish get to the United States, already the Democratic Party has the reputation of being the party friendly to immigrants, and the Republican Party uh, has the reputation, and the Republicans only start in the 1850s, they only start at the tail end of the famine immigration. But the Republicans, as soon as they are started, have the reputation of being the party that the nativists have joined with. Um, and even though nativists don't ever dominate the Republican Party, there's a sense that abolitionists who are uh, mostly strident Protestants who believe in ending slavery because it's a sin are some of the same people who believe in not granting rights to Catholic immigrants because of their strident belief in Protestantism and its superiority to Catholicism. So, so it's easy to believe that, well, the Irish become Democrats because the Democrats welcome them. And then once they see the Democrats become the anti-Republican party, the party not in favor of abolition, the party that dominates the South, the slave South, that they're going to be more sympathetic to, to slavery. Um, on the other hand, some scholars argue that the Irish don't kind of initially think that, but act out this kind of anti-Black sentiment as a way to prove their whiteness to their fellow white Americans. And it's, it's hard to know which, comes which chicken or, or egg comes first there. But whatever the case is, the majority, the, the clear majority of the Irish uh, come down against granting full rights of citizenship to African Americans. Not all, and there's, there's, you know, we tend to, we remember the Irish participating in the draft riots of 1863 in New York, um, in which New Yorkers are venting their frustration with the war against uh, mostly Black New Yorkers and Republican New Yorkers. But we forget there are tens of thousands of Irish immigrants who fight in the Civil War on the side of the Union, support abolition, become Republicans. So it's, it's a comp very complicated answer to a very complicated question. I'd really like to thank Tyler for his time. I have a link to his books in the show notes below. One that I really enjoyed was his work on the Five Point Slum. That's a great place to begin. If you want to find out more, I've created a playlist of episodes on The Great Hunger and there's shows in there about Irish emigration to the US that's available in the links beneath this show. Until next time, Sloan. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.